Study 10, Part 1 of The Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Rushing. The Making of a Nation, The Beginnings of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Study 10, Part 1. 1. The History of the Prophetic Decalogue. The Decalogues of Exodus 20-23 through 23 clearly represent the earliest canon of the Old Testament. These are intended to define clearly the obligations of the nation to Jehovah, and to place these obligations before the people so definitely that they would be understood and met. As the term Decalogue, that is, ten words, indicates, the biblical Decalogue originally contained ten brief sententious commands, easily memorized even by children. Each of the Decalogues is divided into two groups of five laws or pentads. This division of five and ten was without reasonable doubt intended to aid the memory by associating each law with a finger or thumb of the two hands. Exodus 20-23 through 23, and its parallels in Deuteronomy contain ten Decalogues, that is, a Decalogue of Decalogues, suggesting that originally a Decalogue was associated with each of the fingers and thumbs of the two hands even as were the individual words or commands. This system of mnemonics was useful in teaching a child nation. It's still useful today. It is important to impress upon the child in this concrete way certain of the fundamental obligations to God and man. The form of the Ten Commandments in part explains the commanding place which they still hold in religious education throughout Christendom. The biblical accounts of the two Decalogues in Exodus 20 and 34 vary in details. The early Judean prophetic narrative in Exodus 34 states that these commands were inscribed by Moses himself on two stone tablets. In the later versions of the story, Jehovah inscribes them with his own fingers on the two tablets which he gave to Moses. That the older Decalogue was written on two tablets and set up in the Temple of Solomon is exceedingly probable, for by the days of the United Kingdom the Hebrews were beginning to become acquainted with the art of writing, and therefore could read the laws in written form. The recently discovered code of Hanurabi, which comes from the 20th century BC, was inscribed in parallel columns on a stone monument. In the epilogue to this wonderful code, the king states, By the order of Shamash, the judge supreme of heaven and earth, that judgment may shine in the land, I set up a bas-relief to preserve my likeness in the great temple that I love, to commemorate my name forever in gratitude. The oppressed who has a suit to prosecute may come before my image, that of a righteous king, and read my inscription, and understand my precious words, and let my steel elucidate his case. Let him see the law he seeks, and may he draw in his breath and say, This Hanurabi was to his people like the father that begot them. Thus this devout king of ancient Babylonia graphically defines the motive which, at a later period, led Israel's spiritual leaders to set before the people those principles which made for the welfare both of the nation and of the individual. Each was keenly conscious that the laws which brought social and spiritual health to mankind emanated from the divine power that was guiding the destinies of men. Hebrew tradition has described in a great variety of narratives the way in which God made known his will to the people. The scene in each case was Mount Sinai, which the ancient Hebrews as well as the Kenites regarded as Jehovah's abode. In the early Judean version, as some writers classify the accounts, Moses alone ascends the mountain, while the people are forbidden to approach. 
In the northern Israelite version, the people approach, but, being terrified by the thunder and lightnings, they request Moses to receive for them the divine message. This later version implies that a raging thunderstorm shrouded the sacred mountain, while the early Judean and late priestly narratives apparently suggest an active volcano. The element common to all these accounts is that under the direction of their prophetic leader, Moses, a solemn covenant was established between the nation and Jehovah, and that the obligations of the people were defined in the Decalogue with its ten short commands. The problem is, however, complicated by the presence of two Decalogues, one now preserved in Exodus 34, and the other, the familiar Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. Both agree in emphasizing, as primary, the nation's obligation to be loyal to Jehovah. The Decalogue in Exodus 34, however, goes on to describe in succeeding laws the ways in which the nation may show its loyalty. This was through the observation of certain ceremonial customs, and especially the annual feasts. Did most ancient peoples show their loyalty to the gods by their lives and deeds, or by the ceremonies of the ritual and the offerings which they brought to the altars? The first great prophet Amos declared that Jehovah hated and despised feasts and ceremonies unless accompanied by deeds of justice and mercy. The Decalogue in Exodus 34 may well represent the original commands which Moses laid upon the nation but the higher moral sense of later editors has truly recognized the superiority of the ethical commands of the familiar Decalogue in Exodus 20, and given it the commanding place which it richly deserves. For a probable literal history of this Decalogue, see History of the Bible 1, page 194 and 195. The two Decalogues of Exodus 20 and 34 are not duplicates the one of the other, but rather supplement each other. The one defines the obligation of the nation, the other of the individual. The Hebrews long continued to retain in their homes the family images inherited from their Semitic ancestors. Not until the days of Amos and Isaiah did the prophets begin to protest against the calves or bulls and the cherubim in the sanctuaries of northern Israel, and even in the temple at Jerusalem. Hence the second command, Thou shalt not make for thyself any graven image. Some believe comes from a period centuries later than Moses. Possibly, as in Exodus 34.17, it originally read molten image, and referred to foreign idols. If so, it may come in this older form from Moses. The tenth command, which places the emphasis on the motive rather than the act, also suggests a mature age. But with these possible exceptions, there is good reason for believing that the spirit and teaching of Moses are embodied in this noble decalogue. In what respects does the version in Deuteronomy 5 differ from that in Exodus 20? Which is probably the older version? What later explanations and exhortations have been added to the original ten words in Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy 5? What was the object of these additions? Are they of real value? Is it profitable to teach them to children today? 2. Obligations of the Individual to God into what two groups do the ten words in Exodus 20 fall, and what is the theme of each? Is there a real difference between the command of Exodus 34, Thou shalt worship no other gods, and that of Exodus 20, Thou shalt have no other gods before me? Did the Hebrews, as a matter of fact, tolerate the worship of other gods in their midst, centuries after the days of Moses? May the Hebrews have originally interpreted the command of Exodus 20 as a demand that Jehovah be given the first place in the worship and faith of Israel? 
How did later prophets like Elijah and Isaiah interpret it? See First Kings eighteen twenty one and Isaiah six one through eight and eight thirteen. The older command in Exodus thirty four, "Thou shalt make thee no molten gods," was probably intended to guard the Israelites from imitating the religious customs of their heathen neighbors, such as the Egyptians and the Moabites. The command to make no graven image was, it seems, directed not against the public idols, but against the private images. These were usually made of wood and were cherished in many a Hebrew family, as, for example, that of Jacob. See the story of his flight from Laban, Genesis 31. Or of David, see 1 Samuel chapter 19. The spirit of the law is truly interpreted by the later priestly commentator, who places completely under the ban all attempts visibly to represent the deity. Is the spirit of this command disregarded by the modern Greek church? In certain parts of the Roman Catholic world? In any phases of Protestant worship? How is the third command interpreted today? The exact meaning of the original Hebrew is not entirely clear. It may be interpreted literally Thou shalt not invoke the name of Jehovah, thy God, in vain. The interpretation turns on the meaning of the phrase, in vain. This admits of four different translations. 1. Purposelessly, and therefore needlessly or irreverently. 2. For destruction, as when a man calls down a curse upon another. 3. For nothing, that is, in swearing to that which is not true. And 4. In the practice of sorcery or witchcraft. For this word was frequently used by the Hebrews as a scornful designation of heathen abominations. Is it possible that the original command was intended to guard against each of these evils? If so, it broadens and deepens its modern application. Its fundamental idea is evidently reverence and sincerity. Why did the Hebrew lawgivers place these three laws, which emphasize absolute loyalty to Jehovah, at the beginning of the Decalogue? What do we mean today by loyalty to God? Loyalty to Jehovah was not only the cornerstone of Israel's religion, but also of the Hebrew state. During the wilderness period and far down into later periods, it was the chief and at times practically the only bond that bound together the individual members of the tribe and nation. Disloyalty to Jehovah was treason, and even the mild code found in the book of Deuteronomy directs that apostasy be punished by public stoning. Loyalty to God, or at least to the individual sense of right, today as in the past, is the first essential of effective citizenship. Which is the more essential for the welfare of the state, the manual, the mental, or the religious training of its citizens? Where is the chief emphasis placed today? Is this right? 3. THE SOCIAL AND ETHICAL BASIS OF THE SABBATH LAW The institution of the Sabbath in different countries apparently has a long and complex history. Many explanations have been given of its origin, aside from the direct divine command. The simplest and most satisfactory is probably that it was originally connected with the worship of the moon. There are many indications in Hebrew history that the early ancestors of the Israelites were moon worshippers. Today, as in the distant past, the inhabitants of the desert from whence came the forefathers of the Hebrews make their journeys under the clear, cool light of the moon, avoiding the hot, piercing rays of the midday sun. 
the moon with its marvellous transformations is unquestionably the most striking and awe-inspiring object in the heavens it is not strange therefore that many primitive peoples and especially the nomadic desert dwellers worshipped it as the supreme embodiment of beauty and power in china feast days once a month were doubtless connected with the phases of the moon among the american indians time was reckoned by numbers of moons the custom of observing as sacred the four days which marked the transition from one quarter of the moon to another was also widespread in the hebrew religion the feast of the new moon was closely identified with that of the sabbath the hebrew month was also the lunar month of approximately twenty-eight days the new moon therefore marked the beginning of the month and each succeeding sabbath a new phase of the moon the fourth commandment seems therefore like the others to have a basis in nature and also as we shall note a social reason would a commandment be truly divine if it did not have a natural and reasonable basis by the ancients rest from labor was regarded as one of the essential elements in the sacred day the prophet amos denounced the merchants of northern israel because they were constantly saying when shall the new moon pass that we may sell grain and the sabbath that we may open the corn in its earlier ceremonial interpretation to abstain from all labor on the sabbath was clearly regarded as a primary obligation like fasting it is probably regarded as an offering due to jehovah the word holy in the hebrew means set apart distinct the sabbath therefore was to differ from the other days of the week the great ethical prophets of the assyrian period were the first completely to divest this ancient institution of its heathen significance and give it a deeper religious and therefore social and humanitarian interpretation they gave it its true and eternal content declaring that god decreed that all who labor should have their needed rest the prophet who added the noble interpretation in deuteronomy five fourteen and fifteen declares that it was not only that old and young master and slave might rest but also that even the toiling ox and ass and the resident alien might have the relaxation which their tired bodies required thus these inspired prophets traced the ultimate basis of the institution of the sabbath to god's providence for the innate needs of man they recognized that it was essential for the physical mental and spiritual well-being of the individual and therefore for the welfare of the state that the hebrews might not forget this obligation the prophets appealed to the memory of the days when the israelites themselves were slaves in the land of egypt and the thought of how jehovah delivered them from their slavery tuan fang the great manchu viceroy who only recently met martyrdom at the hands of his warring countrymen said when visiting america a few years ago i think that when i return to china i will introduce sunday in my province when asked whether he would make it the seventh day he replied yes for i think that the seventh day is far better than the tenth furthermore for the convenience and economy of all i will make it correspond to the christian sunday from my study of the conditions in america and of the needs in china i am convinced that the sabbath is a most valuable and essential institution later judaism revived the earlier heathen content of the sabbath and lost sight of its deeper political social and humanitarian significance unfortunately the christian church and above all our puritan fathers followed the guidance of the latter priests rather than of the early prophets jesus with his clear insight into human hearts and needs and with his glowing love of all men repudiated 
the harsh mechanical interpretation of the Sabbath current in his day, and reasserted the teachings of the great prophets that preceded him. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Does the social and humanitarian interpretation of the Sabbath obscure or deepen its religious significance? Does the great body of the Christian Church today accept the interpretation of the prophets and of Jesus, or that of early heathenism and later Judaism? Does the interpretation of the prophets and of Jesus furnish a basis on which all classes in the state can unite in appreciating and in jealously guarding the Sabbath? Does the acceptance of one or the other of these interpretations fundamentally affect our actual observance of the Sabbath, our motives and our spirit, our attitudes towards our fellow man? You have reached the end of Study 10, Part 1 of The Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Rushing.